I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Brianna Draxler. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. It's also the show that makes KGNU proud. How on Earth was recognized by the Colorado Broadcasters Association with an award for excellence last week. Today is Tuesday, March 13th, 2012. Coming up, we'll look at the fallouts of the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster just over a year ago. The Fukushima accident in highly industrialized Japan underlines the grave risks of using nuclear reactors to generate electricity. After you consider the risks and rewards, we still need nuclear power. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. We have a busy calendar this week in science. For starters, tonight in Denver, Colorado Café Scientifique will host a talk called Space Weather, Our Dynamic Sun and Our Vulnerability to It. Frank Aparvier, senior research scientist at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics, or LASP, will give the talk. He'll get you up to speed on solar flares, since the output of our sun is constantly changing. Solar flares, coronal mass injections, sunspots, solar wind, they all affect the environment of charged particles, magnetic fields, and photons in which our Earth exists. To find out more, come to the discussion. It starts at 7 p.m., but you can come at 6.30 for the social and munchy time. It'll be held at the Wincoop Brewing Company at the corner of 18th and Wincoop in Lodo, Denver. For more info, visit cafecicolorado.org. Colorado is home to 20-some species of snake. Of these, only three fall into the category of venomous pit vipers. The prairie rattlesnake, the midget-faded rattlesnake, and the western diamondback rattlesnake. But apparently three venomous species of snake are not enough to keep Robert Jaden occupied. Jaden is a scientist in CU, CU's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. He is also an expert in neotropical pit vipers. In order to research these venomous snakes, Jaden has traveled to snake beds all over the Western Hemisphere, including Bolivia, Costa Rica, Mexico, Panama, and Peru. This week, Jaden is back in Boulder to share some of his recent findings about the diversity and evolutionary history of these venomous vipers. In the last two decades, scientists have discovered and described 25 new species of pit vipers. This brings the total number of pit viper species in North and South America to 115. Jaden studies the morphology of the snakes as well as their molecular biology. Having a better understanding of the snakes means scientists also have a better understanding of snake bites. This is essential for creating and administering antivenom. Jaden will be sharing stories and pictures from his research adventures this Thursday, March 15th. The lecture will take place at 7 p.m. in the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. And a competing event this Thursday, the Colorado Scientific Society will hold a talk on the geologic uplift history of the Front Range. The talk starts at 7 p.m., at the Shepherd of the Hills Presbyterian Church in Lakewood. It's on 20th Avenue and Sims Street. A social gathering will start at 6.30. For details, go to colosci.sos.org. That's C-O-L-O-S-C-I-S-O-C.org. And then on Friday, March 16th, at the Fisk Planetarium on the CU campus, there will be a special premiere of a new planetarium show, Max Goes to the Moon. It's based on a book written by Jeff Bennett who's an astronomer, teacher, and author. He has appeared on How on Earth in the Past to talk about his series of children's books about Max, a spacefaring dog, and also about his book, Math for Life. Also attending the event this Friday will be astronaut Alvin Drew, 
who, while he was aboard the International Space Station, delivered a broadcast reading of the book, Max Goes to the Moon. That's this Friday, March 16th at 7 p.m. at the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. For more information, contact the planetarium by phone at 303-492-5002 or by email at fisk, F-I-S-K-E, at colorado.edu. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. It's been just over a year since the 9.0 magnitude earthquake off the coast of Japan triggered a massive tsunami. This one-two punch disabled the reactor cooling systems, which led to the worst nuclear meltdown since Chernobyl in 1986. The tsunami swallowed several villages and killed nearly 20,000 people. Many more are still missing. Some 350,000 are still homeless. Twelve months later, some rice, vegetables, and milk produced in the region are still deemed too contaminated with radioactivity to consume. The economy has taken a huge hit as well. And a recent independent investigation highlighted the political fallout. The owner of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant and the Japanese government concealed how extreme the situation was and how much of a threat it posed to the public. What's clear is that public trust in the nuclear industry in Japan and in the government itself, has tanked. In the studio, we have two nuclear experts to discuss the impacts of the nuclear disaster, both in Japan and here in the U.S. and elsewhere, for that matter. Actually, we welcome these two guests back to the show as they joined us on March 22nd last year, soon after the disaster. First, Jeff King is Program Director of the Nuclear Science and Engineering Program at the Colorado School of Mines, and Len Acklin is co-director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado Boulder. He wrote a book years ago called Making a Real Killing, Rocky Flats and the Nuclear West. He was also editor of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Jeff and Len, welcome to How on Earth. So I thought I'd start, Jeff, with you, just if you could briefly distill the events that happen. I know a lot of people have been listening over the last week or so, you know, the anniversary was Sunday, but just to still what, what did happen, and particularly focusing on the, the power plant itself. Right. Of course, it's, it, it's a long topic, but we'll, we'll try to distill it down to the, the bare essence. Basically, when the earthquake and tsunami happened, um, the, the plant was operating, or three of the reactors of the plant were operating. The, uh, the earthquake caused them to sh start shutdown procedures. Tsunami came and wiped out their ability to provide off-site power. The plants, these are older design plants, require um, a power to remove um, what is uh, decay heat from the reactors. They were unable to remove that decay heat and ended up um, through a series of events resulting in severe core damage in three units, hydrogen explosions uh, in another three, in three buildings. Uh, ultimately led to a fairly significant release of radiation. And do we um, know how much? Uh, it was on the order. Um, we're still working. It's uh, I forget the exact units offhand. Uh, it's generally expected some fraction, about a tenth of that released in Chernobyl, that was released in the Chernobyl event. Um, and that number is still being discussed, but that seems to be. And I know, Len, given you were editor of the uh, Bulletin for Atomic Scientists, actually when Chernobyl happened, right? right. Is this square with you, or what, what's your sense of well, the, how um, it compares? Well, I think in terms of the uh, uh, 
uh, International Atomic Energy Agency rating scale, uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima are both rated, you know, as the most extreme event. But uh, but Jeff is correct. Actually, the the number I have is a little bit higher. Um, it's a, that Fukushima released about uh, twenty percent of the amount of radioactive cesium that Chernobyl released. Um, but you know, when you look at the uh, at the consequences, you know, right now there was an evacuation of more than ninety thousand people. There's still um, an exclusion zone um, around the plant, a twelve mile radius around the plant. Twelve mile radius meaning no one can go there. Meaning, or well, workers can go there. Um, recently, uh, in the last couple of weeks, a, a group of journalists went in, but they all wore protective clothing and uh, you know carried dosimeters. And indeed, you know, one of the measurements um, made during that trip was that the uh, uh, a kilometer from the uh, from the plant, the um, uh, levels of of radiation were about 300 times the amount the permissible um, standard allowed for normal citizens. So we're talking about you know a very hot area. You know, the question is how hot. Um, there is uh, you know some question and again the estimates vary you know one is that the cleanup is going to take decades and cost over 600 billion dollars that's an estimate by um, a Japanese scientist and weren't they saying that most of that money is what Japan has actually saved in not having its own fossil fuels because it's been so reliant on nuclear energy I'm not sure of that comparison mm -hmm. but you know it's certainly a, a lot of money and we're talking about um, you know, the estimates, again, you know, are it's going to take more than a decade to get into the three reactors um, that melted down, you know, the cores melted down. Um, we also know that, that right now, you know, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water daily are being um, pumped into the reactors to keep them cool because, you know, they're still, you know, there's still a potential for, for a meltdown. It seems to be stabilized as far as you know, the information that we get, although it's still a little bit sketchy. But the other thing that is happening is that there are monthly 2.4 million gallons of water leaking from the reactor. So it's poured in, some of it's leaking out. Um, the rest, you know, that, that is taken out is then put through a filtration system where the cesium-137, radioactive cesium, is removed as well as the salt. So Leaking you have back to the ocean? I mean, where leaking, does that water leaking go? Out, well, some will go into the ocean, some, you know, into the into the into the ground, into the soil. And and first, Jeff King, I want to give you a chance to give your perspective on, you know, is it stable, and what does that mean? Well, relatively speaking, uh, yeah, the system is is stable. I mean, you've you established recirculating cooling, which was one of their their key criteria early on. Certainly, it's a system that requires continued maintenance, continued monitoring, but at the moment you don't see um, the evolution of the event like you did. Um, for comparison, I think, too, a couple things. Uh, that $600 billion number is a lot higher than the one I've heard. I've, the, the estimates I was reading yesterday were probably in the 50 to 50 to 60, which is about a quarter of the total cost, uh, estimated cost of the cleanup from the entire tsunami. I mean, is the, that the a government estimate, or where's that, that was a, that was a press estimate, mm -hmm. and I believe that's deriving from the government. But mm -hmm. I have uh, that six hundred billion dollar estimate is the, that's the first time I've heard that. Uh, that it's in the number. Economist current issue right. of the Economist. And oh, I, right, the headline of which is the death of trust. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, 
you know, and that we, we, we will see. I mean, that's one of those evolving things. I, I think another comparison, if we come come back to Chernobyl, that's a really important is uh, is the total doses um, when you look mm-hmm. at because dose really directly equates to risk. Um, there's, I mean, some scientific debate about whether it's linear or not, but it basically directly compares to risk. And the doses that we see from Fukushima are orders and orders of magnitude less than Chernobyl. You have at this point a handful, 20, maybe 50 workers, possibly, well, we'll say 100 workers that were exposed to um, what would be considered overdoses. After Chernobyl in the first year, you had over 100,000 people who were at those same dose levels. Um, We forget that, but the Chernobyl doses are orders of magnitude above what we see here. And Could I just add something yeah, on, go ahead. on this the is workers? On I, think, I think one of the uh, one of the issues is that temporary workers are being brought in for the cleanup, and those temporary workers are, you know, getting their yearly dose maximums within you know a few days, and then they're sent out. And one of the issues, and the same issue occurred with with Chernobyl, is tracking, you know, the the people who are getting exposed. Um, at Chernobyl, there were liquid people called liquidators uh, a lot of them were soldiers who were ordered you know to go into the into the plant site oh. they disappeared they've never there's never been a follow-up you know on on the health damage there so you know you have in any kind of uh, you know major nuclear accident you know at Chernobyl you had I think the initial uh, casualties were like 31 from very high high dose uh, doses of, uh, of radioactivity um, but over time, you know, you're talking about the cesium and the iodine-131, which is very short-lived, but the cesium, um, you know, can, uh, can cause cancer, you know, years down the road, I mean, sometimes 20 years before the cancer shows up. I think I heard in an interview yesterday, someone in Japan um, from the industry actually projected up to a million cancer cases over the next 30 years. That's a years. ridiculous number. That, that's, that's an absolutely ridiculous number at the, at the level of doses you're seeing. There's absolutely no way that, that you're going to see a million, a million cancer cases coming. We didn't see a million cancer cases from Chernobyl. It's, you know, the, the, the identified number of cancer cases for Chernobyl is in the thousands. Right. And I know um, we've got plenty to cover both in the U.S. And, and globally, but I also wanted to ask, what about the impact on Japan's nuclear power industry? Jeff, Jeff well, King? I think it's I think it's we it's a we will see. Um, it's we'll, we'll we'll get to Germany in a little bit, I'm sure. But the interesting thing, I mean, Japan right now is they their their government their their people have lost trust in their have lost trust in their government and in their industry, and you know that's an important thing in the nuclear industry to have. Right now, they have two operating plants. They'll shut down in another few weeks. And that's two out of what? Didn't they have 54 50, 50 total? 50-some-odd. 54. Um, 54. Um, and it's, we will see. I mean, I, I take kind of a we will see attitude. There are communities that are beginning to push the government to allow the, the plants to uh, restart. Um, their industry, I think, is probably going to start pushing as they get into the summer and they start dealing with the fact that, you know, they've lost 50% of their power. Um, and that that drives their economy and various other things. So and I they're think relying we'll, we'll a lot see. more on Russia's right oil and, now, right? Right, and that's the other. I mean, the the other um, thing is that they haven't replaced it with carbon carbon free um, sources. Um, Len Acklin. Uh, Japan has also abandoned uh, plans to build 14 new reactors, um, and I think that you know what I've read too is that uh, some of the uh, the 52. Uh, reactors that are currently shut down, you know, will will restart. Uh, the question is how many and where, um, and the the localities have been given much more power um, than they have uh, than localities in the United States to actually, um, 
determine whether or not a, a nuclear power plant is going to operate. So much more to cover in Japan. Right now we're going to take a station break and then get to um, the U.S. and f global impacts. This is Susan Moran. I'm talking with Jeff King, a nuclear engineer at the Colorado School of Mines, and Len Acklin, a journalism professor and co-director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at CU Boulder. We're discussing the many fallouts of the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan just over a year ago. How on Earth and all of KGNU is on your dial at 88.5 FM and 1390 AM in Denver, Boulder, and far beyond. So why don't we start with the U.S. Jeff, how would you say Fukushima has affected the nuclear power industry here? Well, basically what you see in the, in the U.S. industry is more or less what's supposed to happen in that the accident happened, the industry immediately looked and said, are we at risk of a similar accident immediately here? Basically came to the conclusion that we're not sitting on similar faults for the most part. We have a few plants that uh, are on the coastline in the west coast, uh, but the east coast plants are not sitting in similar geography. But then really started digging into what other things did we learn um, and there have been a few really important lessons that came out of this that the, the industry is moving towards and, and the NRC is moving towards adopting um, in terms of being able to deal with what are known as beyond design basis accidents. Uh, beyond design basis means when something happens that basically when you design the plant you didn't expect. And we try to design our plants to deal with every foreseeable accident, but we recognize that there are things that we can't anticipate. Um, primarily coming out of 9-11, where we suddenly realized that, wow, someone might try to run an airplane into our, into our nuclear power plant. We never designed based on that. Um, and the industry went and looked and spent a lot of time, and they've done a lot more on that. Um, they've also looked at the specific design um, that was involved, the, the uh, 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 boiling water reactor. At Fukushima, design, you mean? At Fukushima, yeah. which is a boiling water reactor, um, which we have similar reactors in the United States, and there have been several design changes that have, that have come out of that. We've also learned, uh, I think one of the big ones is that it's important to be able to monitor spent fuel pools at all times. So there's a requirement coming out to put better instrumentation in spent fuel pools so you don't end up with a situation where you don't know whether you have water in the pool or not. I mean, they, they did um, at, at Fukushima. Um, but they spent a lot of time worrying about that, and it probably distracted from other things that were, were necessary to be dealt with. So that's been one of the, one of the impacts. And do those changes apply to, it seemed like pretty big news in the last couple months, wasn't it in December when two plants, new nuclear reactors in Georgia got approved right. for construction um, so by the you, NRC? You see, two new, you see two new what are known as um, combined operating construction licenses issued, which means that in three to five years, if everything works well, maybe a little longer, um, those two new plants, first new plants uh, in 40 years in the United States will come online. And those plants... Um, we'll have to incorporate those lessons learned um, and incorporated many lessons learned that we've learned over 40 years. We, we didn't stop designing nuclear power plants um, over the past 40 years. But that's we, really important to note that wouldn't this be the first to be approved for construction since 1978, just a year before Three Mile Island happened yes. in Pennsylvania? Yeah, that would be um, that would be correct, primarily for economic reasons, when, why we stopped. Um, mm -hmm. the, the energy crisis uh, resulted in a loss of demand, and so a lot of those plants stopped. Um, this would be the first first new um, the uh, the first new uh, combined operating license or co construction license in over 40 years. Len Acklin, I see you chomping at the bit. 
Well, um, you know, it's correct, you know, as Jeff said, that the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission um, has introduced some, some safety changes to address uh, particularly spent, uh, spent fuel rods, you know, the, the f nuclear fuel that, you know, once it's used, it's taken out and, and where, it's, where it's stored. I mean, because one of the things that we now learn from a recent uh, investigation in Japan was that uh, there was great concern about one of the uh, spent fuel pools near reactor number four of the six reactors mm -hmm. at Fukushima. Um, so that's of concern, but um, the interesting part, and um, you know, Jeff said that the uh, the safety measures would be you know introduced in these new reactors. In fact, uh, that is disputed by the NRC itself, which is the reason that the chairman of the NRC voted against um, allowing the licenses because he said by 2016 or 17, when these um, reactors are put into operation, they wouldn't incorporate, you know, all of the safety designs, and uh, one of the company spokesmen actually said that. Um, but let's step back a, a bit, I think, um, if we can, and, and say, you know, the United States operates the most reactors of any country in the world, 104 reactors at 63 sites. And that's, what, 20% of our electricity mix? 20% of, of the electricity, right. Um, and these reactors at the 63 sites, uh, 4 million Americans live within a 10-mile radius of those reactors. And if you extend it to 50 miles, which is what, you know, the U.S. Embassy um, ordered evacuation or, or advised evacuation of Americans during the Fukushima accident to 50 miles, um, there are 180 million Americans who live within 50 miles of those 63 reactor sites. So we're talking about that. Uh, the other thing, uh, just to mention quickly, is that, um, you know, the NRC has, you know, continues to be um, uh, criticized because it allows 27 of the um, reactors to operate without adequate seismic protection, you know, despite the, the earthquake danger that was shown uh, at Fukushima. Right. So you're basically saying too soon, we're not ready yet. Um, we've got a little bit of time yet. I, I want to, there's so much more on the U.S., but I want to also get to Germany, France, and elsewhere. So just a couple questions, Len. I know um, you've been looking into Germany, France, and elsewhere in the EU. What, just give a sense of globally, particularly in the EU right now, what's been the response to Fukushima? Well, the, uh, the initial response was that, that Germany, um, which had originally had a, uh, an exit for, from nuclear power uh, planned for 2021 when the conservative government came in in 2009, uh, that was reversed. And suddenly, after Fukushima, the Merkel government agreed to the, uh, um, to the exit of nuclear power. So they're going to close down their 17 reactors by 2022. And France is still gung-ho? France is still very gung-ho, um, gets approximately, you know, 78 to 80 percent, depending on which numbers you read, of its electricity and also its export, uh, has a big export business in nuclear reactors. And just as a, a wrap-up, Jeff, um, if you could wave your magic wand, what would the global nuclear scenario look like now, the industry? Well, I, I think you're going to see some countries uh, are going to respond as they traditionally have and, and move to pull out, like Germany. Um, you're also seeing other countries that are very gung-ho, many of Germany's neighbors. In fact, Germany announced they're pulling out. Czechoslovakia, or the Czech Republic, excuse me, announced that they're going to build four new ones. Well, thank you both. I know there's plenty more. Hopefully we'll have you on the show yet again. That was Jeff King, a nuclear engineer at the Colorado School of Mines, and Len Acklin, journalism professor at CU Boulder and co-director of the Center for Environmental Journalism.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and was engineered by Jim Pullen. Shelley Schlender is our executive producer. Our engineer is Jim Pullen again. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Alson Ryuzen Ramos, playing the shakuhachi, the Japanese bamboo flute on a piece titled Flute on the Misty Ocean. And Jean-Pierre Rampal played the Japanese folk melody Moon Over Ruined Castle. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to the howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Brianna Draxler.